welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from the Science Talk podcast, Rachel Maddow, Mother Jones Radio, and the Young Turks. First, John Hoffmeister is the president of the Shell Oil Company. He gave a speech on September 7th at Washington University's Wiedenbaum Center on the Economy, Government, and Public Policy in St. Louis. I saw some brief articles about the speech and called up the university, which sent over a DVD of the entire talk. There were a couple of passages I thought were particularly interesting coming from the president of an oil company. Hoffmeister made it very clear that Shell was in no way getting out of the oil and gas business, but he also addressed the benefits of alternative fuels, and then he said this. We believe at Shell that we have to change the hearts, the minds, the values, and the behaviors of Americans toward a culture of conservation, to use energy differently and to use energy more efficiently in the world of tomorrow. Eight percent of the world's population today in this country uses 25 percent of the world's energy supply every day. That is not a sustainable formula for lifestyle and use of energy into the future when we know for a fact that the other 92% of the world wants their fair share of energy. And if you travel today to China, travel to India, travel to other parts of the world, you see increased use of energy in ways and means that we are accustomed to in our lifestyle. And you realize that we can't deny Chinese, Indians, Africans, Malaysians, other people from different parts of the world from also wanting their opportunity to use energy in different ways. And so the unsustainability of the 8 to 25 formula will only be satisfied in the current lifestyle by higher cost. And at some point, cost is too great for the social requirements of our communities and our cities. And as a consequence, people get frozen out. They can't afford energy. They can't pay the bill. They can't fill up the tank because it's too expensive. So a culture of conservation to us deals with hearts, minds, behaviors, beliefs. And it leads to different ways of managing energy in terms of how we design our homes, how our cars are designed, how our factories, offices, and lifestyles are designed. I don't mean to be critical, but this morning, coming down the elevator in the Hilton next to the ballpark, waiting for colleagues, you looked at the fireplace, there's a gas fire, heating an air-conditioned lobby. It looks great. It feels great. A little chill in your back and a little warmth on your front. But is that an efficient use of energy in the world of tomorrow? The answer is obvious. A culture of conservation is much more in our view, in Shell's view, than simply moving the thermostat one or two degrees or driving slower or driving less. It's much, much more than that. Those are, of course, available options to every one of us today. But it's not enough. 
We need different designs and different mindsets around the engineers and the technicians and the technologists that work on these things. And we need to move forwards as a society in a way that is different. At the end of his prepared remarks, Hofmeister took questions from the audience. Here is his response to the question, can you give us your thoughts on the science of greenhouse gases and that whole issue? For Shell, the debate's over on greenhouse gas emissions. We've, we, we, for two reasons. We believe the science is mature in terms of measuring greenhouse gas effects on the world as we live in it. And secondly, when most of the policymakers around the world have decided that greenhouse gas emissions are at a level of, that's not acceptable due to man-made uh, issues, who are we to say they're wrong? They run our governments, they run our countries, um, and, and we're a citizen. So we follow what our policymakers tell us to do. And so we think the debate's over. Let's instead get on with the solutions. is changing in the country and in the world about nukes, about nuclear weapons and nuclear power. It used to be that we were freaked out about nuclear proliferation. Now it's only Iranian nuclear proliferation that freaks us out, but we're apparently cool with India and Pakistan and, uh, you know, and every whole, you know, whole new generations of, of nuclear weapons in the United States, these, you know, suitcase-sized nuclear bombs that we want to develop. It used to be that when we talked about nuclear power plants, we thought about Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and the, the toxic dumps at Hanford and Yucca Mountain. Now the president is giving speeches in front of cooling towers calling for more clean nuclear energy in America. I think the debate is changing. For more than 30 years, my next guest has been a major actor in the debate internationally about nuclear power and nuclear weapons. Her name is Dr. Helen Caldecott, and she has a new book out called Nuclear Power is Not the Answer. Dr. Caldecott, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. Do you feel like I'm uh, accurately characterizing how the debate has changed recently? You know more about this stuff than anybody I know. Yes, I think you are. Um, the fact is that when uh, global warming reared its ugly head, the nuclear industry leapt in with both feet and said, we're the answer to global warming because we don't make any global warming gases, which is a lie. They've spent $200 million on an intense propaganda campaign to convince people that nuclear power is safe and has no emissions. Well, you know, a nuclear power plant doesn't stand alone. You have to mine the uranium, millions of tons. You have to crush it up. You have to enrich it. You have to build a reactor. You have to decommission the reactor after 40 years, and then you have to transport and store the waste safely for half a million years. If you just take the front end of the fuel chain from mining to the nuclear power plant, a nuclear power plant at the moment produces one-third the amount of carbon dioxide, the major global warming gas, as a similar-sized gas fire plant. But as the uranium ore declines in concentration, which it will over a decade or two, 
so much fossil fuel will go into producing a fuel that it will the nuclear power plant will produce the equivalent amount of CO2 as a gas fire plant. So, in fact, nuclear power adds substantially to global warming. A reactor operating every day releases routinely a, a large amount of radioactive gases and tritium, which are carcinogenic, and a nuclear power plant transitorily produces electricity for 40 years by basically boiling water, by fissioning uranium, but what it really produces is massive quantities of high-level, toxic, carcinogenic, radioactive waste, which will over time produce epidemics of cancer and leukemia, particularly in children who are so sensitive to radiation and genetic disease. So it's a mutagenic and carcinogenic industry whose byproduct is electricity. Our guest is Helen Caldicott, whose most recent book is Nuclear Power is Not the Answer. You know, and, and I'm glad that you raised the issue of global warming right off the top, because I feel like one of the other ways that this that the nuclear power debate is, is changing recently is that with the increased concern about global warming, uh, and with it becoming a more mainstream concern, it, be, it becoming something that politicians for once feel like they have to answer as their constituents' concerns about this, do you feel like there are people who are in the environmental movement who are concerned about global warming warming, who ought to know better, who are um, kind of buying the industry line on nuclear power, that nuclear power might be an answer? You are right about that. Most of them have no medical knowledge, except James Lovelock, who's an Englishman, who's a medical scientist, not a physician, um, who has been pro-nuclear for 20 years. He's written a very good book on global warming, but he's totally wrong on nuclear power. I've talked to him, and he also thinks that oxygen causes cancer. Oh. And he said he would heat his house by putting radioactive waste in the basement. <laughs> There's another guy called Patrick Moore who says he was one of the founders of Greenpeace, which Greenpeace would they'd disown him, but he's being paid now by the nuclear industry. So anyone who's pro-nuclear in the environmental movement, I'm not casting aspersions on all of them, but many, you have to look and see what their associations are. And the general public needs to learn about the medical effects of of the whole nuclear fuel cycle, it's terribly serious. You know, we can't cure most cancers. And what, so the medical dictum states, if you have a disease that you can't cure, you have to prevent it. When you said, when you said a moment ago that, that, radioact- that, that nuclear power plants are literally emitting radioactive gas and things like tritium um, every day, yep. that, that's not an accident? That's something oh, they no, do as a matter routine, of course? That's routine emissions every second of every day. They can't operate without doing that. And if you read my book, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer, you'll get you know chapter and verse about the radioactive materials they emit routinely into the air and the water, and they use a million gallons of water a minute to cool the reactor, and that's emitted back into the lake or river or ocean where the isotopes like strontium-90 and cesium-137 and tritium concentrates hundreds of times in the algae and then the crustaceans and then the little fish and the big fish, and you can't taste strontium-90 in fish. You don't say, hmm, I can taste the strontium-90 because <laughs> our senses didn't evolve to pick up radioactive material in our food. Does so the... it's very serious. And when the cancer develops, see, if I sneeze on you, 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 you will be sneezing in two days if I'm contagious, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And for mumps and measles, the incubation time is three weeks. But for cancer, it's long, silent, five to 60 years after you eat some radioactive material and when the cancer arises it doesn't wear a little flag denoting its origin 
And that's why the nuclear industry can do what they do with impunity because you can't say that particular cancer is caused by radiation. However, we've got a huge medical literature on the fact that radiation does cause cancer. There's no doubt about it. It doesn't, that even, does, the idea that somebody would, that that would be a point of dispute that radiation causes cancer, it seems like that's something that's in the common wisdom. But there's, but there's, an, there are, there, there are things about nuclear power and nuclear weapons that I think aren't in the common wisdom that, for me, the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it, because your book makes them very clear. Yeah. I didn't really grasp, even though I talk about this stuff all the time, Time, that nuclear power plants literally in the process of making energy are manufacturing plutonium. Sure, every reactor manufactures, well, a big reactor man- manufactures 500 pounds of plutonium a year, and you only need 10 pounds to make yourself a bomb. Right. A lot of countries, and I think it's up to 60, and I've got a whole chapter on proliferation when you're talking about Iran and Iraq and and the like, I talk about the real rogue states in, in the world actually are America and Russia, who own 97% of the 30,000 hydrogen bombs in the world, and they still target each other. I mean, we could be blown up tonight if the Russians make a mistake, and they almost did in 97, then 95. They nearly blew up America by mistake. So the, the, the truth is every country that has a research reactor, and there are up to 60, I think, can make themselves a bomb. And so... The International Atomic Energy Agency both promotes nuclear power mm-hmm. but says, no, but you're not allowed to make nuclear bombs from your nuclear power plant, which is, in fact, a bomb factory because it manufactures plutonium, which lasts for half a million years. So it's a push-me-pull-you, Dr. Doolittle animal. Yeah, you can have a reactor, but you mustn't make a bomb. Oh, well, we're the only ones who can have bombs, us big nations. And we promise to get rid of them, except we won't. But you have to do everything you promise to do. Exactly. (laughs) What do you you think of Ted Turner and Warren Buffett uh, pledging recently to give $50 million to set up an international nuclear reactor fuel bank so that uh, countries who say they want to have nuclear power but not nuclear weapons, that they will uh, give up the right to enrich uranium, they'll be given enriched uranium already out of this stockpile, thus taking the whole weapons issue kind of uh, at least a little bit out of the equation. What did you think about that? Oh, look, I don't. I think it's very, uh, it's kind of fallacious to do that because, mm. as we just said, every country that has a reactor, even though you think you're going to control the fuel, might not give the fuel back. And don't forget that plutonium has a half-life of 24,400 years. So, you know, we're talking about hundreds, thousands of years, not now, but forever. Any country that has a reactor can make a bomb from its plutonium. So I think it's a rather fallacious concept to think that, well, we'll make, make the enriched fuel, but we'll take it back and you can't make a bomb. I don't think you'll be able to police that. One, two, um, where they're totally ignoring the medical consequences of nuclear waste and that each reactor emits radioactive materials into the the air and water as it operates, causing the food to be radioactive near a reactor and children to get cancer because they're so radiosensitive. So Warren Buffett and Ted Turner, I mean, I respect them on the one hand, but on the other, they do not understand medicine. They do not understand the medical consequences of nuclear power. It's a carcinogenic industry. And when I spoke recently at Harvard, at my alma mater, to Children's Hospital Medical Center, to the top pediatricians in the world, with whom I worked for eight years on the faculty, I told them about the medical effects from uranium mining and enrichment and nuclear power and nuclear waste. They were gobsmacked. Hmm. They were absolutely shattered and 
And doctors are the best audience I ever addressed. Do you know why? Because they understand implicitly what I'm talking about. And what we need to do is educate Ted Turner and educate Warren Buffett, who's a good man, about the fact that nuclear power is a cancer industry. It really is, and, and the doctors got it immediately. And it's one, thing, it's one thing to take weapons out of the equation, but to maybe have to take nuclear power out of the equation, too. Helen Caldicott, it's a, it's a great book, and it's great to talk to you, and I thank you for joining us. Yeah, and my webpage is nuclearpolicy.org if you want to look at up and get some more information or read the book. We will post a link to nuclearpolicy.org on our webpage today That's for our listeners, very, too. Very, very kind of you. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks very much. Helen Caldicott, the new book is Nuclear Power is Not the Answer. When I talked about the Ted Turner, Warren Buffett, $50 million, we'll give you the uranium so you don't have to enrich it thing. Remember my take on that was, wow, it's so simple. It's an answer to a complex policy problem that you could fit in a fortune cookie. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I forgot the whole, you know, running nuclear power plants for energy makes plutonium thing. I knew there was a reason it couldn't fit in a fortune cookie. Duh. We've been on the run, driving in the sun, looking out for number one. California, here we come, right back where we started from. Well, hustlers, grab your guns, your shadow weighs a ton, driving down the 101. California, here we come, right back where we started from, California. Nothing's gonna stop me now California, here we come Right back where we started Say what you will about Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'm sure you can say a lot. He has made a stride in the direction of more sustainable energy, at least in the state of California. Earlier this week, he signed a bill that may result in the installation of solar electric panels on a million California homes over the next decade. Now, that expansion of solar subsidy programs is one way that we can look to a future that is less reliant on oil. That's a step in the right direction for an oil-free future, but as we have learned, we can't count on the government for everything. So we'll bring you two examples right now of ways that people are doing it on their own. We'll talk about how to make a sustainable home and how to drive a sustainable car. We start with Robert Plar, who's the co-founder of World's Nest in Taos, New Mexico. Robert Plar, welcome. Thank you. Explain, if you can, exactly what I know we call World's Nest a living laboratory, and there are, in fact, people living in it. How do you explain that to people? Well, in 1975, I built my first one, built the world's largest wind generators back then, and I spent 31 years perfecting and developing a sustainable home that produces its own energy, recycles its own waste, grows its own food, fuels its own vehicles, and does its own health care. So it's uh, a zero-impact building that harvests water six times, and at the end of the cycle we take an air-to-water machine and we take water out of the humid air of our rainforest that's in our house that provides us oxygen, medicine, food. We provide the purest water in the world. So that water is harvested six times. So we use six t- times less water than anyone in California, and there's nothing left for the septic or sewage. It goes nowhere. It's totally used. How and different does this look from, say, the average home? Well, it, it can look like any average home. Ours looks sort of like Disneyland. You don't live at Disneyland, but we built a building that is an art piece that actually demonstrates all these systems in one place, and we're about to build millions of these homes around the world, 800-square-foot guest houses, structures, 
that would be a safety pot in the back of any home. Or in, in Asia, the average uh, home in Japan is like 750 square foot. We can build for family for a fully sustainable building that goes up within 7 to 14 days. We're developing a prefab system. Our materials withstand 2,000-degree torches. It is, it's a water-resistant. It actually floats the material. It's, we use fly ash, sugar ash, volcanic ash, and foam cups. We use 95% less concrete. 95% less steel. I'm trying to figure out how, though, this translates. I mean, for example, yeah. an 800-square-foot uh, pot home doesn't have, for example, a rainforest in the middle. It does. Each one does it. Uh, each one has a small rainforest. That's, your, that's part of your living space. So when you are relaxing, you're relaxing in your rainforest with your mangoes, papayas. You're breathing that oxygen, medicine, and food it creates. And also beneath your feet, it's cleaning your waste, providing moisture. And our air-to-water machine takes that moisture from those beautiful leaves creates the purest water in the world so you don't have to drink city water or you know most of the wells in the united states have heavy metals and are poisoned with mtbes so really there's three quadrillion gallons of water in the air and these new air to water machines actually take that uh, out of the air filter it and clean it and you have the purest water in the world robert plar i appreciate it thank you thank you that's robert plar he's the co-founder of world's nest and you can find that online at worldsnest.com now we're going to get you out on the road. We're going to talk about, well, the rebirth of the electric car. A couple of weeks ago, we talked to the creator of a film called Who Killed the Electric Car? And that's currently in release around the country. You can dig up that show in our archives if you'd like to hear it at motherjones.com. Well, someone has chosen to bring the electric car back alive, and it's a very different situation this time around. Tesla Motors, located in Northern California, and we have on the line Mike Harrigan, Vice President of Marketing with the company. Mike, hi. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. The electric car has been, it has failed, and it has gone. So what are you wasting your time and money on? <laughs> well, we have a little bit of a different idea. You know, electric cars have come and gone over the years. Uh, electric cars were the favorite cars back in the early 1900s before somebody invented the electric self-starter for the gasoline-powered cars, they were popular because they were quiet, clean, and uh, the infrastructure for refueling them existed in everybody's homes. So uh, today, with the fuel crisis and uh, oil wars going on in the Mideast and oil pipelines breaking in Alaska and uh, worries about uh, greenhouse gases, it seems like a good time to perhaps reintroduce the electric car to the, uh, to the world. And unlike some folks who have tried it before, what you are is a collection of Silicon Valley-based guys who have access to some good money and who are trying to make a fun vehicle that is also efficient as opposed to an efficient vehicle that might have some pluses to it. Right. So our idea was uh, that if we could uh, bring out a car that uh, we kind of think of it as a no-compromises car in that it's, uh, it's uh, fast and it's fun and it's very stylish, as well as being efficient and uh, very um, ecologically responsible, we thought we would get the attention of not only the already existing base of electric car enthusiasts, but also car enthusiasts in general. I have to needle you about that. In your facts section, you're frequently asked questions, can I trade in my Porsche? Mm. Okay, you and I apparently live in different worlds, Mike, and I'm wagering that most of our Mother Jones listeners would not come up with that as one of their first questions. But it does point to one of the big sticking points. You're making an expensive right. luxury automobile. What is your projection as to whether 
if you succeed, if this is something that might move down the class ladder a little bit, can you succeed where California legislation and eventually GM failed? Yeah, well, I mean, I, there, boy, that's, you, you've opened up a whole can of worms there. We purposely brought out a car at the high end because we are a startup company. It's very difficult for a startup company to try to compete, especially in the world of cars, with a low-priced, high-volume automobile. We simply don't have the buying power to, to build it, and, all, to, and quite frankly, the electronic technology uh, the, or electric car technology is not quite there yet that we can actually produce a very low-priced car. So the other alternative, uh, and the one that we chose to do, was to design, develop, produce a car that is kind of a high-end car mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, quite frankly, will be sold in fairly low volumes at fairly high prices. And the reason for that is, is that, uh, number one, it, it builds a reputation that electric cars can be fun and stylish and so forth, helps us build our brand, but it also uh, help, uh, the sales of these cars help us develop the, uh, the technology that will take us down market into more pragmatic cars. And we have a car, just such a car, on the, on the drawing boards right now. Oh, talk about that. So we're looking at, uh, we're developing a car that um, won't, still won't be down what I'd call the economy car class, but it'll be, you know, in the, uh, we're, we don't know the exact price range yet. It's, it's somewhere north of uh, $50,000, uh, but it's a four-door sedan, uh, four-passenger kind of car that uses the same basic powertrain technology that we're using in the Roadster uh, and will be sold in, in substantially higher volumes. Even your emotions have an echo and so much space. And when you're out there without care, yeah, I was out of touch. But it wasn't because I didn't know enough. I just knew too much. Uh, a much more serious topic, um, life in a post-carbon world, where, you know, you want to talk about Armageddon, we run out of oil, and we'll start to see what actually goes down. And on to, uh, with us to talk about it is Nicholas Von Hoffman of The Nation. Hi, Nicholas. Hello. How are you? I'm, I'm all right. A, I'm a happy bearer of bad news. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm all right now because we got air conditioning in here, but, you know, we run out of oil, and we run out of air conditioning. I'm not going to be a happy camper. No, you're not. That ain't all you're going to run out of when we run out of oil. (laughs) So let's talk about this. Now, of course, there's a lot of different theories on whether we have enough oil. Uh, Everybody agrees that the demand is increasing. You'd have to be crazy not to uh, understand how India and China are improving their economies and how we're also growing and demand rises every day. Uh, but there is a lot of disagreement about the supply. Um, do you have it figured out, Nicholas? I mean, uh, why are you confident that the supply is uh, not going to be enough to meet that demand? Well, first of all, let's start out with a theological proposition. The only thing that is infinite is God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all. Everything else there is a limited amount of. Right. And that includes uh, oil. So we know that there is only so much oil left underneath the surface of the earth. So we're just arguing about how much. But if God really loved us, wouldn't he supply us with enough oil? Now you're getting personal. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. All right. So I hear you. And obviously, Nicholas, at some point we're going to run out of oil. But the huge, huge question is, 
at what point? And why is there evidence that leads you to believe that we're getting closer to that point? Well, uh, it ain't me because this is, you know, for geologists and people like that. Uh, as far as I know, the Wall Street Journal, for example, the other day said uh, about 40 more years of oil. Hmm. So it, it goes plink, plink, plop. Um, in um, 2046. You know what? I made it because I'm. Uh, I'll be 76, and at, you, after that, uh, I'm all right. You you may you you may have croaked in time, <laughs> <laughs> but of course, uh, in reality, that's not how it's going to work. Because no. as it begins to run out, the panic sets in. Well, prices not only go that, up. The price the price rises and rises and rises. See, but we now, have good alternatives. So when you're 76 or so, we'll just make that change, like if you've made it to the age of 77, and you'll be okay, right? Yes, there is this magic line <laughs> that after a certain age, you don't need anything. <laughs> and at that point, we'll have developed the switchgrass thing that Bush was talking about. Yeah, right. Well, he should go eat some. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, now I, I want to get to that uh, transition period. And there I think I might actually disagree with you a little bit. We're talking to Nicholas Von Hoffman. Uh, he writes at The Nation, and he's written Life in a Post-Carbon World. You can read that at thenation.com. See, I, I do believe to some degree that once the price goes up enough, that that will provide enough economic incentive for us to, quote, magically, and it's, of course, not really magic, uh, for there to be enough economic incentive for us to find another energy source and transition to that. What's wrong with that kind of thinking? Well, I think it's... It, it's theoretically, it's absolutely sound. I agree with you. But what what is the energy source? What's that? What's the energy source? Oh, come on, switchgrass. Switchgrass. <laughs> no, yeah, I, no well, honestly, Nicholas. Hey, it's good for cows. It's good for the president. <laughs> what about what ethanol? What can I tell you? It, it, it keeps the president up and running. What, I don't think it'll do that much for the rest of us. What are the possibilities? Are there possibilities? There, there is no substitute that we presently have for oil. The best we have are substitutes for some things that oil gives us. Well, I think Jill asked a good question. You know, ethanol, the, these kids that kid drove across the country, we had them on the show, they used E85. Well, does some of that do the trick, at least for cars, and then we can get to some of the other uh, well, information? Well, uh, right, there are two things you can say about ethanol. One is um, don't try to heat your house with it. Mm -hmm. And I only say that to indicate its limits as a, a useful fuel. But the other thing is that there is a great deal of dispute over how much energy it takes to make ethanol. In other words, if it, if it takes, which is, uh, and I think this is the optimistic, uh, uh, appraise, it's very hard to figure these things exactly, but I mean, some people say it takes as much energy to make ethanol as a, as a gallon of ethanol contains. Other people say, no, the ratio is, is, is much more favorable. But let's just say that uh, it, it takes a half a gallon of energy to make a gallon of ethanol, and that's, uh, I've never heard anybody say it takes less than that. Uh, you see where we are. This, this, this uh, helps a little, right. but it don't get you there. So uh, is it time to run for the hills? Well, I, right now, forgetting all the theoretical stuff, right now, the single best thing we can do is stretch that 40 years out to 60 or 80 years. 
Oh, I'll definitely be dead by then. That's okay. Then we're covered. (laughs) Then we're covered. But remember, it isn't that we go full bore for 40 years and then, bang, the lights go out. It don't work that way. It progressively gets worse as the price goes higher and there are no real substitutes. See, the problem is, though, we've uh, we've read too many in history, and I believe history is a good guide, unlike the Republicans, uh, of doomsday predictions. You know, Malthus, of course, is the one that's most often cited of we're going to run out of food, we're going to run out of X, we're going to run out of Y. And they never come true because we just we adapt and we come up with something new. Well, we do and we don't. Um, um, In fact, of course, if you look at certain um, civilizations in the past, you'd have to say uh, the doomsday predictions did come true and the civilizations disappeared. You know, that's actually a really funny point. I never thought about it that way. So, you know, there was a couple of guys, in, a couple of, like, Richard Clark types in the Mayan civilization going, yeah. really, we're going to go under. I'm telling you we're going to go under. They're like, oh, we're the Mayans. We'll never go under. Yeah, and so it was, like a, it was like a dinosaur, Richard Clark. He was like, it's getting incredibly cold. We have to do something about this. Yeah, well, that's it. But, I mean, you know, the, you know you can, you, if you don't adapt, you go under. If you adapt, you don't go under. So this is not a, um, I'm not predicting doom. I'm predicting doom if you don't adapt. I hear you. So I mean, you got two. Let me give you a, 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 not that it's really comparable, but look at two communist societies where the oil was turned off overnight in this case. One is North Korea and the other is Cuba. North Korea did not adapt, and they are literally eating switchgrass or any other kind of grass. They're starving to death there. Mm-hmm. Cuba adapted. They changed their entire um, uh, agricultural system and much of their economic system. When uh, they woke up one morning, there no longer was the Soviet Union, and they were no longer getting oil. Uh, can I tell you something? You, you can tell how terrible a system communism was when Cuba is the example of people who did it right. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. All I said is and, and, what, uh, the, the figures that I have, and I hope they're correct, I, I don't pose as a, 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 you know, somebody who's an expert in these matters. But at any rate, uh, in, the days, in the years immediately after the... Um, um, uh, the shutting off of the oil in Cuba, the average weight of Cubans apparently dropped some 20 pounds. But then they got it, they got it going enough, so their weight is back up again. Uh, yeah, well, wait a minute now. All of a sudden, out here in Hollywood, we're beginning to think maybe running out of oil is not such a bad idea. Yeah, well, I, knew, I knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> I could use like five to seven. Jen could use like 60. Okay, well, we'll... So, and we'll cut your oil off for about what? Three months? That sounds good. That sounds good. Three It'll months. It'll be like me giving back to society. You know, exactly. We're talking to Nick von Hoffman from the uh, uh, from the Nation, and I hate to stop making fun of y'all's weight, but the that's a staggering statistic. Yeah. When the Soviet Union collapsed, so in nineteen what eighty nine, all of a sudden, what over the next three or four years, Cubans lost twenty pounds. Wow. That's the that's the number I have. Wow, that's amazing. But they figured out, uh, they you know they 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 completely changed their agricultural system. 
Huh. That, and uh, and they, they regain the weight. They're back they up to the fighting weight. They're, huh. they're still short on protein. They have apparently they have not solved the beef problem. You know, and the, that completely. Yeah. But um, they are they are doing quite well. And in fact, of course, uh, currently a Cuban's life expectancy is about a year and a half longer than an American's. Wow. Huh. Cuba, all of a sudden, looking up. <laughs> all right, now... Uh, hey, they're, they're, they're still putting people in jail for saying the wrong things and stuff like that. And, the whole, and, 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 and Nick, the whole country still needs to be painted. So, yes, it certainly are, does. Those are two downsides. We're talking to Nicholas Von Hoffman. Uh, he wrote Life in a Post-Carbon World for the Nation. You can read it at thenation.com. So I want to get to two questions, and we're running a little short on time now. One is, uh, I want to play one of my favorite games here. Nicholas Von Hoffman, all of a sudden, congratulations, you are president. What do you do about the energy problem? How do you get us to a, a successful transition? Oh, I immediately resign and turn it over to my vice president. <laughs> and who is that? <laughs> Al Gore? That's, that is, I hope it's Al Gore because he's the only one with an idea. The rest of them are absolutely clueless. Is that right? Is Al Gore the only sort of national political figure at, at least talking about all Oh, he's doing more than talking about it. He knows about it. Which is different. Excuse this is not this is not speechwriter generated crap. He actually knows what he's talking about. So would you feel a little uneasy if Hillary Clinton was president, but you would feel pretty good if Al Gore was president on this issue? Well, I, yeah, I, 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 well, you know, with Hillary, who knows? I mean, she, she who knows what, where she'll be tomorrow on any issue? But this is very complicated. It is very difficult. But it is particularly important for young people. Yeah, well, because uh, ancient, flatulent persons such as myself will not have to face this day. <laughs> but anyone in their 20s, 30s, etc., they're going to have to face this. Well, now that we're having fun, how old are you, Nicholas? I am really old. <laughs> what are we looking at? 60, 70, 80? What are we looking at? Oh, 88. <laughs> no, get out of here. 98. Yeah, I, right. I, I, listen, I'm the old man of the mountain. <laughs> All, right. All right, so uh, final question for you. Given that uh, we're having a demand and supply problem with oil, given how important oil is, which is, you know, which obviously you talk about in your piece and we've talked about here, perhaps there is some sense to the Dick Cheney's of the world who think, well, look, we better make sure we got a little bit of control over the areas that have most oil in the world. What do you think about that, then? Well, you, you mean, let's go, let's go grab somebody's oil? Well, that... Uh, let's forget, leave, leave, out, he's, leave out the part that it doesn't work, but the idea that, Jesus, we should get it. It's still, if the, if the calculations are right, some 40 years from now, it won't matter. Because somebody's going to take because that oil. It's still a finite. Listen, it's not who has the oil; it's how much oil. That's true. And furthermore, because we have it, doesn't mean that the United States has it. We immediately turn over to the you know BPs of the world that you talk about in your article, and Exxon Mobil's et cetera, and they sell it to whoever they like. China, yeah, well, of course they do, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, nobody, you know, is. Certainly, these these folks are not looking at at what's staring ahead. The rich people aren't. Nobody is. All right, uh, President Von Hoffman, thank you for joining us. Oh, anytime. Just uh, remember, I'm up for re-election in four years, and I'll need your vote. <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
for the past year or so, I've been working on kind of minimizing and downsizing all of my possessions. I mean, my, my whole life, basically. Everything I own, you know, trying to get rid of as much crap that I don't need as possible and just reducing costs in, in all possible ways. Basically, I'm preparing to go from uh, the job that I have now to not having it anymore. And, um, and so as part of that, uh, I've been thinking about what to do about a car. Right now, uh, the car that I drive is uh, far too expensive for me. It's, it's actually a, a Prius, and it's wonderful, and I love it, but I just can't afford it. And frankly, I couldn't even afford it when I bought it. So, uh, you know, I, I, there's no reason why I should be driving one. I don't even drive it enough for it to be worth it. And so, you know, I made the kind of heartbreaking realization a while ago that the day would come when I'd need to get rid of it and, you know, downgrade to something much cheaper and it, I'd, it would still be very small, fuel efficient and all those things, just not the hybrid, not with all the bells and whistles and everything. And until just really recently, I thought, um, you know, that was my plan. And then recently, I thought to myself about possibly getting a, um, you know, like one of those old cars, an old Mercedes or something with a diesel engine, and looking into the whole biodiesel scene. And basically, my knowledge of how the biodiesel system works <clears throat> only goes as far as kind of what I've heard and interviews and you know, on the radio and people talking about it, but I've never done the actual research myself. And so what I'd like to ask uh, the audience now is if you know anything about biodiesel, about running a biodiesel car, about what kind of cars work well with it, you know, if you have personal experience, I would love some advice. And um, basically, I understand, I mean, I can, I can go do some research, I can you know, I can, I can kind of wade through all the information that's out there, but I just thought it's always better with personal contact. So I thought if someone's out there who knows about this sort of thing and be interested in sharing it, not only could you share it with me, but I could share it with the rest of the audience and this would be a good uh, learning experience. So if you want to uh, contact me about that, uh, you can send me an email, hippie simper, my goodness, hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, or uh, even better, I think, would be, uh, especially for this topic, uh, to uh, call the, the comment line, 206-984-3907, and, uh, and just let me know what I need to know, uh, any advice you have for anyone who may be interested in this sort of thing, and that will get passed along on the show. So any advice would be greatly appreciated, and I will certainly keep everyone uh, up to date on this situation if I actually uh, go ahead with a plan like this. You'll certainly hear about it, and uh, I'll talk to you all very soon. Have a good one, everybody. Thought, thought,